Well, this chapter begins with uh, the little words, at that time, and uh, if you have been going through the series of Daniel, uh, you'll recognize that that forces us to take the events of chapter 12 uh, at the uh, beginning, at, at the birth of Christ. Now, some people have taken this passage, and I would say nowadays most people have taken this passage as referring to something that is the end of history. And uh, that would certainly be tempting. It uh, does speak about a resurrection of uh, people. There will be a resurrection at the end of, uh, of history of, of people. And I have to admit right off the bat that if there was any place in Daniel 11 verse 1 through the end of Daniel 12 where it would make sense to put in a, uh, a, a 2,000-year gap, I think this would be one of, those, uh, one of those places. But this does not say later on it does not say after this, it says at that time, and I think those words force us to take the context of when these things are happening in the century associated with Christ's birth uh, rather than the century associated with uh, Christ's second coming. And uh, we saw when we were going through chapter 11 that the chapter ends with the death of Herod, Herod the Great in 4 BC. There were 164 specific prophecies in chapter 11 that we have traced through, and each one of those uh, we have seen has been perfectly fulfilled uh, just as it was laid out way before. Now, let me just comment on verses 40 through 45, which is the most immediate context. We saw in chapter 11 there that this simply cannot occur in the future. Now, there are many different reasons that we gave for that, but let me just give you two historical reasons. If you take a look at verse 41, you'll see in the last clause there that it speaks of Edom... Moab and the prominent people of Ammon escaping from the war that is being described there. And we saw how that was fulfilled in the uh, first century B.C., before Christ. Very literally and miraculously, those three nations escaped that war that devastated all of the other nations. Now, here's the point. If you don't take it as being fulfilled then, then you've got a, a real difficult time because those nations have long ceased since ceased to exist. They were annihilated. Uh, they are non-existent nations. Um, uh, and uh, so this really cannot uh, hold uh, true for the future. Secondly, Caesar Augustus took huge amounts of, uh, of treasure from Egypt, uh, just as verse 43 prophesied that he would. And since that time, Egypt has been a poor, poverty-stricken nation. They really are not the kind of wealth that this passage talks about that could be plundered from, from Egypt. And so on, just on those two historical references, uh, it would be extremely difficult unless you totally, um, um, not spiritualize, but you, um, I was going to say metaphorize, uh, but uh, the Ammon, Edom, symbolize, if you symbolize those. And there are some people who say, well, there, these nations don't exist, it must be a symbol of something else. But uh, if you take it uh, literally and straightforward, it really has to have been fulfilled back at that time. Now, that leaves us with the context of Herod the Great. If you look at verse 44, the troubling news from the east we saw was the news from the Magi, who brought the news of the birth of a king. And the troubling news from the north at about the same time was troubling news from one of Herod the Great's children who was in the north up in Rome, and he brought news of a conspiracy from his other children. And... History and the Gospels tell us when Herod found out about these wise men and the birth of this king, he was furious and he destroyed many in Bethlehem. 
And Josephus tells us that uh, when news from the north came uh, about this conspiracy, he murdered his two sons and many other people along with them. And so there was a, a fulfillment of that. Now, verse 45 indicates he was going to have his time of death as well. And in spite of the help from many people, there was no one to help him. He, he died in uh, 4 B.C. And so chapter 12 really speaks of a new era of spiritual battle in the heavenlies that began with the birth of Christ. Uh, the prophesied kingdom of God had finally come. And with that as a background, let's go ahead and begin with verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Now, if you look in the scriptures, at the time that Michael stands up, that he comes into prominence, it is a time of spiritual battle that is going on. And um, the uh, largest battle for the souls of people began, really, with the, the birth of Christ, and it's going to extend through this entire, uh, this entire age. And I think it's not without significance that the New Testament mentions Michael the archangel and the angel of the Lord, which I believe to be the same thing, over and over again uh, in the New Testament. And it mentions spiritual warfare in a way that uh, is far more prominent than the Old Testament. The battles going on with the unseen principalities and powers behind the scenes. And I think something enormously significant is happening when Michael the archangel stands up. And it is significant. It is a phasing out of the old covenant, and it's the phasing in of uh, the new covenant people. Now, one reference, you may want to cross-reference to this first phrase about Michael the archangel standing up, is Revelation chapter 12. And I think that is a great commentary on what this standing up is referring to. In that chapter, you find not only the birth of Christ, but you find uh, his ascension, and it speaks about Michael the archangel and all of his angels with him are fighting against Satan and his angels as the advancement of Christ's kingdom uh, goes forward. So that is a helpful commentary on that. The next phrase deals with another significant event, and this one happens at the end of that period of time that is being described. And it says, uh, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Such as never was uh, since there was a nation even to that time. Now this is known as the Great Tribulation. You've probably heard uh, that phrase bantered around back and forth. Many people think the Great Tribulation is in the future. Uh, this passage, along with several earlier passages which are far clearer than Daniel 12, tie that great tribulation in with the seven-year war against Jerusalem that lasted from 66 A.D. through 74 A.D. And we dealt with that at quite some depth. I'm not going to go into detail here. But the New Testament picks up on this passage, alludes to this passage, and indicates that it would be fulfilled within a generation. Matthew 24, verse 21 says... For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now, when was that supposed to be? Christ tells us. In that same chapter, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. And very literally, a generation was 40 years, very literally, within 40 years, that great tribulation came upon Israel, just as Christ had said. And so this first sentence, I want you to see, this is a summary statement of the whole period of time that stretches from 4 B.C. to 73, 74 A.D. It was the last days 
of Israel as a nation. The last days uh, of the old covenant, of the temple, of the sacrifices, of the priesthood, it was all done away with, uh, the last days of that, of, of that period. Then he goes on and he backs up and he begins looking at that whole period again and he gives five other things that happen within that period of time. First, there is the redemption of all of the elect and that's what the first, um, I mean the next uh, phrase there uh, is referring to. It says, and at that time your people shall be delivered everyone who is found written in the book. Okay, now I, re- I believe that that phrase is referring to the redemption that Christ accomplished for all of the elect on the cross. There are many people who disagree with me. I want to be upfront about that. Uh, premillennialists say this is a reference to uh, the uh, future resurrection. And let me point out that there's a number of problems with taking it uh, as um, a future resurrection. <clears throat> uh, first of all, um, it uh, mentions here that everyone who is so delivered is going to, everybody who uh, is written in the book of life uh, is going to be delivered at that time. Premillennialists agree on their system, not all the elect will be physically raised in what they say is going to be the resurrection in the future because there are going to be many people who will die and who uh, after that resurrection and who will be raised to life. So on their system, it really does not uh, does not fit. And I want you to notice how absolute this is. Whatever deliverance it is talking about, it says, at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, secondly, we've already seen that the context indicates through that, that, that phrase that happens twice, at that time is this century associated with Christ's birth, not with his second coming. Thirdly, if it was a resurrection, then there would be a contradiction between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, notice that. In verse 1, all the elect are delivered. In verse 2, where there is a literal resurrection that's mentioned, it's only many. Many will be raised from the dust, okay? So there would be a contradiction there uh, verse, uh, uh, between verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, the New Testament uses exactly this language to describe something that's already happened in the past. See, uh, Daniel, looking forward, is saying this deliverance is going to happen in the future. Over and over again, the New Testament, looking backward to the cross of Christ, says the deliverance has already happened. Let me just give you a few samples. We're spoken of as being delivered from the wrath to come, for the 1 Thessalonians 1.10, who delivered us from so great a death, 2 Corinthians 1.10. But now we have been delivered from the law, Romans 7, 6. Christ's uh, death is said in Hebrews 2, 15 to deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Uh, he has delivered us from the power of darkness, Colossians 1, 13, and gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us, Galatians 1, 14. See, all of the elect from the foundation of the world to the end of history, were delivered when Christ died on the cross. Now, that's an important thing. We're going to look at the application later. Redemption was not just made possible. Uh, Redemption was accomplished. It was finished. The full debt was paid when Christ said, it is finished. It was a, a term meaning the full debt has been paid. They were delivered at that point. Now, I think you can see that, tra- that um, interpretation fits the first century context very well. The next uh, verse refers to something that happens three days later. Not to all now, 
but to many. It says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, I believe this is clearly referring to a resurrection. I know some people who have symbolized that because they're puzzled. They say this is the first century. It can't be a resurrection. I believe it's a literal resurrection that it's referring to. The question is, which one? Is it the resurrection of many people at the time Christ rose, or is it the resurrection of all who are in the graves at the end of history? See, John 5, verse 28 says, at that point... All who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Not, not many. It will be a resurrection of everyone. When Christ rose from the grave, there was not a mass exodus of all. It was of many. Now, I want you to turn with me to Matthew 27, because I think Matthew 27 alludes to this chapter, Daniel chapter 12. And, uh, and uh, as we read this, I want you to keep in mind, Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. In Matthew 27, beginning at verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this was not a private resurrection that wasn't witnessed by very many people. He says there were many witnesses to the fact that many people had literally come out of their graves, had been given new bodies, and they appeared to many with these resurrection bodies. So there was a literal resurrection. And I believe, by the way, if you're students of eschatology, that this resurrection was the first resurrection that Revelation 20 talks about. Okay, Revelation 20 speaks of there being two resurrections. It says that there will be uh, the first resurrection, and it says the rest of the dead will not rise till the thousand years is finished. Okay, so this is the first. And um, uh, it was not a resurrection, according to Revelation 20, of everyone. It was a resurrection of martyrs. Now listen to Matthew Henry's comments on Matthew 27. And again, keep in your mind... Revelation 20, and actually every other passage only allows for two resurrections. Some people make three, four different resurrections. There's one resurrection that's already happened, and there's one resurrection that's waiting to the last day of history. Matthew Henry comments on Matthew 27, says this. They were martyrs, these saints that were raised with Christ, he says, they were martyrs who in the Old Testament times had sealed the truths of God with their blood that were thus dignified and distinguished. Christ particularly points at them as his forerunners, chapter 23, 35. And we find Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, that those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus arose before the rest of the dead. Sufferers with Christ shall first reign with him. Now, I want to spend a little bit more time on this because verse 2 is the verse that people tend to stumble over as they're interpreting this chapter. It seems to many people as if it has to be something related to the end of history, and yet the context seems to mandate it, that it would occur uh, at the, the, the century of Christ's first coming. And uh, let me, first of all, deal with hyper-preterists. Uh, I'm not a hyper-preterist, I'm a preterist, but hyper-preterists see all prophecy as being fulfilled. I see still a number of prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, but hyper-preterists uh, will look at this passage and they will say, this passage clearly has a resurrection uh, during the, the time of the Great Tribulation in 70 A.D. Now, they can't answer the, the, the question of why it's many, 
rather than, than all. In their system, it's all who are raised uh, at that point. Um, and I believe that their theory fits this context way better than any theory that places the resurrection off in the future because the whole context mandates it to be at the, the time of Christ's, um, uh, Christ's first coming. So let me give you a few scriptures. Uh, the reason I believe the hyperpreterists are wrong is other scriptures indicate there's only two resurrections. One, when Christ rose, one at the end of history. But it clearly has to be in the first century. Turn with me to the next book, Hosea. It's the very next book, Hosea chapter 6. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians says that um, Christ rose on the third day according to the scriptures. And uh, people have puzzled. Where does it say in the scriptures, you know, Christ was going to rise on the third day? You know, Jonah may be in a symbol, but it's not anything explicit. And it says scriptures, plural. So where are the, the passages? Well, there are many commentators that say Hosea 6 must be the reference for Christ's resurrection on the third day. But I want you to notice how it's worded. It's not just one kernel of wheat that gets resurrected. It's not one person. It is a whole bunch of people that get resurrected. Hosea 6, verse 1. Come... And let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. And by the way, the passage goes on to talk about some of the kingdom blessings that come. But clearly, there was a resurrection of many people on the third day when Christ rose. Now, I've given in your bulletins a number of other scriptures that you can study for yourself. I'm just going to uh, quote a couple for you. Isaiah 26, verse 19, Christ is prophetically speaking, and let me just give you the literal rendering. You can find this in the uh, New King James, uh, New American Standard, the margin has that. But it says this, Your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the departed spirits. So, Christ is speaking and he's saying together with his dead body, there are many others who are going to rise in a resurrection, not just their spirits, but their bodies are going to rise as well. Ezekiel 37 also speaks of a resurrection followed by a great tribulation, just like Daniel does. And just as Matthew 27 has those graves opened up on the day of Christ's crucifixion, but they're not raised yet, the graves are opened and the body's exposed, but they're not raised until the third day, Ezekiel 37 shows these bodies that are exposed, but it's not until later that flesh comes upon them and that they live. And if you look, it repeats it over and over. Many people say it's a symbolic reference to Israel coming into the land. It speaks about people coming out of the graves, out of the dust of the earth. I believe it's a literal resurrection that he's referring to. Now, people say, well, what's the point? Why would he raise people there, just a few, and not any others at the end of history? Well, uh, Matthew Henry gives four reasons why God did this. First of all, Matthew Henry says that God did this to prove that Old Testament saints enter into salvation that Christ provided just as much as the New Testament saints do. Uh, they were given a token of that fact. People might have wondered, you know, what happens to them? Well, the fact that there were Old Testament saints that were raised proves positively that Christ's redemption applies to them as well. Matthew Henry says, secondly, it gave visible demonstration that Christ had conquered death, not just on his own behalf, but on behalf of his people. There was an evidence in physical resurrection bodies uh, being manifested to others. Thirdly, 
He said that it was an earnest, a pledge, a down payment, as it were, of the final resurrection, and that's why it's called the first fruits. Now, at the time of first fruits, that's when Christ rose from the dead on the fifth festival of first fruits, people would take a portion of the harvest, just a handful, and they would offer it up to the Lord as a token, an earnest, a down payment, as it were, of the fact that all of their harvest that they would be harvesting sometime down the road belonged to God. It wasn't just one grain that's offered up to the Lord. It's a whole bundle of grain. And so along with Christ, there is a first fruits offering of many, many saints uh, coming to life. Fourthly, Matthew Henry says it gave testimony that there is a real inheritance for a real resurrected people. So I think there was very good reason why God uh, brought about a resurrection at that time. But Daniel 12 indicates uh, these reasons apply not just for the unbelievers, but for, I mean, for believers, but for unbelievers as well. Uh, there was a, a contingent of many, but not all, evil people who were raised, and it's a token or a pledge that there will be a resurrection to damnation uh, at some time in the future. And I believe all of that literally happened in 30 AD. It was a pledge that there will be an afterlife, and every one of us will go to one of two places. We will be raised to what Daniel says here, to shame, contempt, and punishment, or we will be raised with the wise uh, to uh, shine as the, the stars shine forever and ever. So that was the first fruits resurrection, a pledge of the reality of a future resurrection. Now, the third and the fourth things that happen uh, as a result are given in verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And we've commented on those uh, phrases uh, in an earlier sermon. But he says, many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. I believe this is a reference to the Great Commission. Now, the word for run is not the ordinary word that would be used for a runner who's, you know, just racing along. It's a word that's uh, uh, translated, lexicons uh, say it can mean to travel, to roam about, uh, to run to and fro, here and there. And I, th this passage indicates that the purpose for the running to and fro is to cause knowledge to increase. There was a, a, a relationship between the two, and that is exactly what the Great Commission was all about. Matthew 28, it says that we are to travel to all nations, preaching the gospel, instructing those nations in everything that Christ has commanded. So I believe that's a reference to the Great Commission. Then the final thing that is said to happen during this period, and it ends up that period again, just like the introductory statement did, is the, uh, the Great Tribulation. Let's go ahead and begin reading at verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever. Uh, let me just briefly comment that angels are not omniscient. Okay, Demonic ones aren't. The elect ones are not. Uh, they need to be instructed. They need to be told things. And here's one angel who says, okay, I've heard this, but wh what else is going to be happening? And he's instructing this angel in the things that the Lord has told him. But here's the point that we want to comment on. He says that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Now, that exact phrase has already occurred in Daniel 7, verse 25, and we saw back then that it very, very clearly referred to the first half of the seven-year tribulation against Israel. Now, a time is one year, 
Times is plural, so that could stand for two years, and a half a time would stand for half a year. So you add them up, one plus two plus a half is three and a half uh, years. Now, that is the first half of the resurrection, I mean, of the, the, the Great Tribulation, and I think that was the key half, because that was the period in which Jerusalem was devastated, the temple was raised, the priesthood and all of the old covenant ceremonies were forever obliterated. In the second half of that seven-year tribulation, uh, uh, Rome began a mop-up operation which ended with the destruction of Masada on March 30, 1974. Now, I have in your outlines previously, uh, 73, uh, some of my research, uh, in fact, there's a, a book that I want to see if I can borrow from uh, Bob Fugate, if he has it, but some of the most recent research has showed that it was actually in 74 rather than 73, and uh, that helps to explain the 1290 days and the 1335 days in the last two verses. But uh, anyway, where was I before I went off on that rabbit trail? Oh, yes, uh, the, the, the three and a half years and then ending with uh, the, the destruction in Masada. And that's where verse 7 ends. It says, and when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Now, let's just quickly look at Daniel's response. He says in verse 8, Although I heard, I did not understand. Do you sometimes feel that way? <laughs> With Pastor Kaiser's sermons, Although I heard, I did not understand. Uh, Daniel can relate. Uh, sometimes scripture is complicated. And even these uh, angels who are perfect preachers, you know, they couldn't communicate it clearly enough where Daniel didn't have to do some study and in, in, inquiring of his own. And that's why Scripture says we need to study. We need to be workmen, diligently looking through the Scriptures. And if we do, uh, th there's a, a rich payoff that we can have. I want to end the sermon by looking at some of the practical applications that we can make uh, from this passage. First of all, we can trust God's Word in the tiniest details. You do not have to twist and push the Word of God in order to make it fit. Some of the interpretations on this passage where they uh, they try to get a thousand years between the first resurrection and the millennium and the last resurrection and other things like that is just amazing. And I think when you see chapter 11, verse 1, through this uh, these verses here, we've looked at 173 prophecies that have been fulfilled just as spoken. It gives us tremendous confidence. And I think this is a message the church needs to hear. So many people out there have become cynics when it comes to prophecy. And, uh, uh, you know, I grew up being taught, you know, in the 70s, Christ is going to come. And then it's going to be in the 80s. And then there was 88 reasons why Christ had to come in 1988. And then it's in the 1990s. Now people are saying it's going to happen in the year 2000. Um, uh, and people begin to be cynics after a while. Uh, or there will be a book that's written, and they'll say, well, these scriptures apply to this stuff that's happening in the Middle East, you know, 25 years ago. And then circumstances change. And this one author, uh, Dr. Wolverd, he just republished it. And he says, these scriptures apply to what is happening in the Middle East. And then he republishes it for the Gulf War. These scriptures are applying to that. Well, if it applied to the Gulf War, it certainly could not have applied to those other things. And after a while, people become jaded and they say, you know, what's the point of even studying prophecy? Uh, they become cynical about it. But when you see how beautifully, how accurately these scriptures are laid out, it gives you confidence to believe the tiniest details of God's word on the prophecies that are not yet fulfilled that they will be in God's perfect timing. 
Secondly, verse 1 gives hints that uh, Christ's birth ushers in the greatest time of spiritual warfare that this world has ever seen. And there's good reason, because the coming of the kingdom of Christ was intended to destroy the kingdom of Satan. Uh, you know, Hebrews says that he came to destroy the works of the evil one, not just to talk about them and tell them that in some time in the future they're going to be destroyed. No, he came to destroy them, and the church is in the process of taking over the kingdom of Satan. And so uh, the earlier chapters in Daniel were so, so clear on this that the cross was not a repeat of history where things are going to go down. How could they go much worse than they were at the time of Christ, you know, when everybody abandons Christ? What those earlier passages showed, and this one confirms, is that the cross of Jesus Christ is where history has gone down to that, and from that point on, it's going to be reversed. It's not a repeat of history, it's a reversal of history. That's why it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. Okay, the reversal. Uh, continual going up. So, in this passage, if it is the reversal of history, it makes sense that the greatest tribulation that this world has ever seen would be at the midpoint of history, not at the end of history, right? Um, uh, in verse 1, it says, um, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And Christ adds, nor ever shall be. In other words, the great tribulation is not at the end of history. That word, nor ever shall be, indicates there will be history after the great tribulation. And uh, um, uh, people many times uh, say things could never be worse than they are in America right now. You have simply not read history if you think things could never be worse. Uh, they were awful under the time of Nero. There are far more Christians, millions of Christians now, far more Christians than there were at the time that Christ began his kingdom. So it gives us a basis for optimism. The third application is that the salvation of the elect is guaranteed. You cannot lose your salvation. Verse 1 indicates salvation was not just um, uh, made possible by Christ's death, it was made actual. When Christ died, all of the elect at that point were delivered legally delivered from Satan's kingdom. When he cried out to Telestai, it is finished, he meant there is nothing more you can bring against uh, the elect. All of them have had their, uh, their debt paid. And I want you to notice that uh, it's not provisional. It says somewhere, uh, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Notice that phrase. At that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. Salvation was guaranteed when our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. It was purchased when Christ paid the penalty on the cross, and that means we cannot lose our salvation. On what basis would we lose our salvation? Would it be our works? Well, our salvation is not based on our works anyway. Would it be the works of others? No, it could not. Romans 8, 28 through 39 answers every objection that could be brought up against the doctrine of eternal security. And the way it does it is it takes salvation out of our hands and puts it squarely in the hands of God. Uh, you were not saved, you were not delivered because you believed. The reason you believed is because you were already delivered from the hand of Satan by what Christ had accomplished. His redemption, his death on the cross, purchased you, purchased not only your salvation, but purchased the means of your salvation. His death gave you faith, gave you repentance, gave you everything that pertains to life and godliness. 
So that ought to be a real encouragement. Our salvation is secure for all of eternity. Um, the fourth is that even though our salvation is 100% of God, God involves us in the process, doesn't he? He tells us we need to witness, we need to preach, we need to share the gospel with others. And so verse 3 defines Christians as those who turn many to righteousness. Are you involved in turning people to righteousness? Are you involved in turning people to the Lord Jesus Christ? You should be. Verse 4 indicates that uh, there are going to be many who will run to and fro to increase this knowledge about the Lord. There's an excitement, there's an enthusiasm about spreading the gospel, and we too need to have that kind of an enthusiasm about spreading the good news of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this seems to hint that not all believers are going to have that enthusiasm. It says many shall do that, and we need to long to be a part of those people who are wise, who will shine like the stars forever and ever. The fifth application is that God cares about the physical world enough to resurrect your bodies. He cares about your body. Uh, it is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you cannot just treat your body, and you cannot just treat the creation around you any old way that you please. You are purchased with a price. You belong to Christ, and you need to treat your bodies with respect. You need to treat this creation with respect. It belongs to the Lord. Sixthly, the purpose of Christ's death was not just fire insurance, okay? It was not just giving us life and taking us out of death. Uh, it was also to make us holy, to make us wise, to conform us to the image of Christ, as these verses so clearly indicate that we need to not only be wise and grow in righteousness ourselves, but we need to be turning others to righteousness. We need to be increasing the knowledge that others have. Titus 2, verse 14 says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Are you zealous for good works? That is one of the purposes of the redemption that Christ accomplished on that cross, was to enable you to be zealous for good works. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole subject of rewards and punishments here, but this passage indicates that God honors those who are involved in evangelism. God honors those who pursue righteousness. There are rewards we will receive in heaven that are reflected by what we do here on earth. The seventh and the last application is that God brings judgments on nations that reject him. In verse 7, it describes a nation, the nation of Israel, which claimed to follow God. See, America claims to follow God. Even on our coins, it still says one nation under God. But they rejected God's laws and they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as king over that nation, just like America has. Okay? And I want you to notice when this happens. The dates are 66 through 74 A.D. That was after the New Testament was written. A lot of people relegate judgment upon nations to the Old Testament. You know, God doesn't do that anymore. Uh, but this is something that God says was consistent with the New Testament as well. And God will just as surely judge America for our rebellion against King Jesus as he judged other pagan nations in the Old Testament. If you read history from a providential perspective, you can see this is exactly what was happening. I believe that the godlessness in America is one of the signs, as Romans 1 says, that we as a nation have been given up. We have been given over to a depraved mind. 
I think uh, the increase of diseases in America is one of the signs of God's judgment. The increase of billion-dollar-plus catastrophes that have hit America is one of the signs our nation is under judgment. Up through the 80s, there was only one a catastrophe that equaled a billion dollars, even when you account for inflation. Since that time, there have been numerous uh, catastrophes. I believe it's a sign of God's judgment, and I believe that the year 2000 problem, the millennium bug, could very well be God's rod of judgment to judge our nation and many other nations and to chastise and discipline the church. And how the church responds to that discipline could make all of the difference in the world as to how long the discipline drags out. Yes, God continues to be in the business of judging nations. Now, we're going to finish off this passage next week, but let's, um, let's stop right now and let's uh, spend some time in prayer asking that God would enable us to have the kind of wisdom that is spoken of here, the, the involvement in the Great Commission, the determination to advance Christ's kingdom and be part of the spiritual warfare that uh, Michael the Archangel began. Let's pray.